Good morning. Uh, so last week, uh, as we were in our series, uh, I said God might want you to quit your job. We're getting light. It's awesome. And let there be light. It's actually the beginning of creation when God was working. So I got an email uh, on Tuesday, um, and this is what it said. It said, hey, Torn, just wanted to shoot you a quick message, and thank you for your sermon yesterday. There was indeed a lot that resonated with me, and long story short, today I resigned from my position at Voyage. If you could be praying for Jacqueline and me, Willow, and our soon-to-be baby girl, it would be appreciated. Not sure what the future holds, but I know it will be bright, and the Lord will provide. This was a friend of Jordan and I, his name is Zach, and... Uh, um, I thought God might speak to some folks uh, very clearly like that. Uh, I thought it might be a little bit better to take some time to really mull over a decision so significant. Um, so I literally wrote Jordan an email forwarding that along, and I just said, oh, crap. Uh, now, I had not looked at most of my emails that morning. I had been doing other things, and so I was uh, finally going through emails, and I, then I saw this one um, from uh, one of the guys, uh, another friend who, who helps out here at the church with our finance stuff, and he said, so that was certainly a moving Sunday, uh, an issue and topic that I have thought about for years. Me and the guys from TLC met last night, and that was pretty moving as well. I think many of them are hearing what you're saying, and that could lead to changes for them also. Uh, your message seemed like it was speaking right to me. I did it and left my position at United Bank. will certainly be hard on Cindy, and she is nervous about it, but I turned in my resignation even through her tears and am working my way out of here over the course of the day. will be a lot of pressure on Cindy, so you could be praying for that. Pretty exciting, but also scary as I don't know how we will make our normal payments for Christian ed, college tuition, insurance, groceries, gas, etc., but time will tell. So I wrote Jordan another email, forwarding this on, and I said, uh, double, oh crap. <laughs> and uh, then I got a third email from TJ who said, hey bro, just wanted to drop you a quick note and let you know that you really inspired me. I've decided to quit my IT job and pursue my lifelong dream of joining the circus. Wish me luck. <laughs> and it was at that point I realized I was getting punked <laughs> by all of them. But I will have you know that up until that time, I was feverishly praying for Brian and for Zach while I'm freaking out about the sermon that I preached that I think they've all quit their jobs. And so I'm literally praying over them, and then I realize I'm getting punked, and so then I started praying imprecatory prayers, like, Lord, do something to those men. May their coffee be weak this morning. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I was very relieved when I realized it was a joke. <laughs> but why did I think that it might be for real? Well, because we, we all have days like that, right? So sometimes we have months, even years like that, where we wish we could just quit our jobs. We wish God would tell us, you need to quit your job because we don't like it, right? We, we all feel that way. That's why when you see an email like that, you're like, well, I, I, I guess that could be. I've felt that way before, right? Work sometimes is painful. Toil. My, my 
my life, for the most part, to be honest, I've, I've really enjoyed my jobs. I mean, I love what I get to do now. I, I, honestly, I can't believe I get paid to do what I do. I tell people this all the time. Like, I'm like, I had the best job in the world. Like, there's nothing else I would rather be doing than pastoring this church. Like, I, I think I won the lottery. That's genuinely how I feel. Now, I tell them, like, don't tell the leadership that I would do it for free, you know, but I, I would do it for free because, I, like, I love it. My wife likes the paycheck, though, so, like, let's... But the truth is, is uh, I haven't always loved my job. Um, I, I think I shared a little bit of this story a little over a year ago. Uh, I almost left ministry. TLC almost never happened because back in 2005, um, I stepped into a role that I thought God was calling me into. Uh, I enjoyed uh, what I had been doing. I'd been in youth ministry for a long time. And I uh, felt like God was asking me to step in and start a young adults ministry at the church that I was working at. It was called Calvary Church over here on the Beltline. And uh, Calvary, about five years earlier, had planted uh, a church called Mars Hill. And uh, Rob Bell had started Mars Hill, and it had uh, gotten really, really big, really, really fast. And what had happened is a lot of the young folks and younger-thinking folks at Calvary had gone with that church. And so when my friends moved into town, into GR, and they would you know, ask me about churches in the area, a lot of times I was like, well, you should maybe check out that or this or that, but I wasn't saying the church that I worked at. Now, that's a problem for me because I always love and want to see the place that I'm at flourish. And so I went to the board. I said, hey, I think we need to do something about this. Could I start a young adults ministry? Really, it was supposed to be a church within a church, and that's kind of what it was. We, we had folks that were like late high school, quite honestly, all the way up into like their 50s that were a part of it. Uh, within the first couple of months, um, I had some really specific ideas of what it was going to you know, kind of be, and uh, so did some of the leaders within the church. They thought they knew what it was going to be, and quite honestly, what everybody wanted was Mars Hill 2.0. They wanted Rob Bell 2.0. Uh, problem is, is I'm not Rob. Uh, I felt like I needed to be that. So uh, to be honest, I had always thought God had given me some gifts in teaching, but I stunk. I mean, like bad, legit, like I wasn't good. I was trying to be something that I wasn't. Well, there's a whole host of things that wound up going down, but basically the guy that I was working alongside very closely, probably my best friend in ministry at the time, I think I shared this, that the church's budget had been struggling for a little while. Uh, he was asked, um, his position was eliminated actually, and a couple other people who were friends of his that were a part of the ministry and leadership, they came to me and they said, hey, we think you should step down. We don't think you're very good. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, we think you should step down and let him have it. Um, he shouldn't be asked to leave. You should. And quite honestly, if you don't do this, the whole thing's going to be a complete failure. And I, and I walked out of um, what felt to me like an ambush, really wanting to leave ministry altogether. I went home. I started talking to Brenda, and I said, hey, babe, I, I, like, I, like, what else could I do? And we started making lists. Like, I think I could do that. I could probably do that. And I went to the elders, and I explained what was happening, and, uh, and I literally said to them, um, and the, the hardest part of all this is that I think they're right. <laughs> now, the elders were very kind in that moment. They affirmed that, no, God had called me to this position. They had thought about this before. Um, you need to rely on God and not on your, and, and God wound up doing some beautiful, amazing things through that very, very hard time, but I literally almost walked away. Why? Because work's hard. 
There are times when work is toil and painful. That, that's just a reality. I mean, uh, I wish that it wasn't so. But do you know why work is hard? Uh, because God cursed it. What? You're telling me this is God's fault? Not exactly, but I am telling you that God cursed work. In fact, God cursed two things, field and family. Uh, those are two areas of our lives that we put in the most amount of work. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Genesis chapter 3. As you know, we've been talking about the concept of work, why God, uh, how God created us. That was identity. That was really week one, that we were created in the image of God and that we were given uh, jobs to do, really to co-create the earth with him, that we were created as royalty. Kings and queens with royal blood flowing through our veins because we are God's representative created to rule and reign with him, to have dominion, to subdue the earth and to fill it. We learned last week what work's all about, what, what that actually means then to subdue, what that actually looks like and why it matters what we do because we're supposed to partner with God in bringing the world someplace. Today, we're going to talk about the reality of why work is actually so hard and why it doesn't feel amazing and joyous and why, as we talked about last week, everybody's working for the weekend. You wish I was your worship leader, don't you? I know, it's okay. It's all right. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die, which is an addition that Eve makes <laughs> that God never said. But, verse 6, when the woman saw, excuse me, verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her idiot husband, who was with her, and he ate it. That's in the original, the idiot part. You just you know. <laughs> Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, God's not an idiot like Adam. He knows what's going on. He's certainly disappointed, but he's not surprised. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. Why'd you ever give her to me? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's his fault. Keep passing the blame. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. I don't have time to get into what all that means. Some 
powerful imagery that will get explained more as we move into the New Testament. But what I want to focus on is verses 16 and following. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God curses family and field. Now, it, it kind of starts off with them disobeying God, doing what they knew they weren't supposed to do, and basically, instantly, everything changes, right? They go from being naked and unashamed just a few verses earlier to the pilot episode of Discovery Channel's Naked and Afraid. <laughs> Sin enters the world and infects everything. And so God comes down and he has a conversation with Adam and Eve. And God then curses two things, family and field. Now, um, curse is a word that we don't use very often, okay? Or we use it in a different context. Like we'll say, oh, she cursed, which we don't even really say that. We say swear, but you get the idea. It's saying something bad. A lot of times when we think of a curse, we kind of think of like a voodoo hex, all right? Like God is like voodoo hex on childbearing or sprinkled like voodoo hex dust on the earth and like that's where weeds came from. Uh, but the idea of a curse in the Bible is that God actually removes his blessing, his protection from childbearing in earth. It's not like God like sowed uh, weeds and zucchini, you know, onto the earth. They're basically the same thing, I'm just saying, Okay. It's not like God added extra pain receptors uh, um, in a woman so that childbearing is more severe. But God takes what had been a blessing where his protection was over it and he removes his protection. That's what the curse means. Curse is literally the opposite of blessing. Sin wrecks everything. Uh, John Mark Comer in his uh, book Garden City uh, says this. He says, the fall creates far-reaching, irreversible, toxic changes. What was once all joy is now a mixed bag. There's still a lot of joy for sure, but there's also a lot of frustration. Both childbearing and gardening are now called painful labor. In fact, the word in the original language is the exact same word when it talks about the painful labor of childbear and the painful toil of working the ground. The same word. He says, the language of thorns and thistles is symbolic for all culture making. All human effort for civilization, which is what God asked us to do, to rule, reign, subdue the earth, that's culture making, okay? All human effort for civilization is now cursed with a nagging sense of dissatisfaction, fatigue, burnout, back pain, ibuprofen, strife, litigation, greed, waste, poverty, injustice, wishing you had more vacation time, can I get an Amen. All this comes in the wake of Eve's first bite. God does it. But why? I mean, why does God curse work? The very thing that he had created us to partner with him to do. What's up with that? And, and that's honestly a really good question. 
One that I will answer a little bit later. But for now, just know that God does it. I'd like to actually look at how this begins to play out then throughout human history. If you have your Bibles, again, flip over just a few chapters later to chapter 11 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11. It's a story called the Tower of Babel. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Read along with me. I'd like to make a couple of points. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now remember, God had asked Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and to fill it. In other words, that meant to take the garden and then actually continue to cultivate it outward. Okay? They said to each other, verse 3, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan uh, to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Have you ever heard the term, they're babbling? Right? When we say what a baby does when you can't understand them, that's where it comes from. So God comes down and says, oh, you don't want to do what I've commanded you to do, what I've designed you to do, then I'll have to do something about that. Now, there's a couple of things that we learn in here. There's two ways that the people of Babel are getting their identity from their work. Okay? Two ways that the people of Babel are getting their identity from their work. See, when you start to lose your identity, who you are, you begin to look for it in other things. So first, we see in verse 5, the grandiose statement that they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. This suggests that they are assigning spiritual value to their work that they would be better off getting from God. In other words, instead of finding their spiritual value in God, in a relationship with him, they start to assign it to what they can create. You see, the heavens, that was the place that God lived. And so now they're trying to build a tower up to the heavens so they can be up there. It's kind of like folks that will create like a garden oasis where I can just experience spiritual world. They're assigning spiritual value to something that they're doing. God says, that, you're never going to find it there. The second thing, oh, well, let me say what that leads to, okay? Uh, when we assign that kind of value to something that we do, it leads to materialism and self-sufficiency, where we think we can kind of make things happen ourselves, all right? Where the fruits of our labor are allowed to tell us that we are healthy and safe. It's an issue of control, the second thing that it does is they also say uh, that they desire not to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is what God had commanded them to do, right? Subdue and fill like they, they were supposed to. They didn't want to. They wanted to be like, no, 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 let's hang out together. We're going to build this great city. Well, the reason is it seems to suggest that they also get a name or an identity, a sense of belonging from being gathered together in a large group. So part of their sense of power and security 
instead of coming from God, actually comes from the size and wealth of their city. Uh, Tim Keller says this, he says, While the first kind of identity making comes from creating an idol of one's individual talents and accomplishments, all right, that's that first part of building a tower to the sky, he said the second kind comes from making an idol of one's groups. This leads, of course, to snobbery, imperialism, colonialism, and various other forms of racism. Man, how true is this? I remember thinking when I first read that, I was like, oh, like that's, like that's me. I lived in Chicago when I was a kid. And I'm not kidding. It's weird because I think back on it now, but I, I felt a sense of superiority. You know why? Because we had the Sears Tower. No joke. I'm like, the Sears, it's the tallest building in the world. It opened in 1973, the year before I was born. It was the tallest building in the entire world until 1998. Now it's called the Willis Tower. Back then, when I was growing up, it was Sears Tower. I was like, I had nothing to do with the Sears Tower, okay? Other than I gave them money to go up to the observatory a few times. But because I was from Chicago, I was like, we're better. We got the biggest building in the whole world. Like, obviously, that makes us better. Better than New York City, for sure. Trash dump, you kidding me? Shoot, Chicago's where it's at. Now, even when I moved to Flint, I think it's part of the reason that I stayed a Chicago fan. Like, I'm still a Cubs fan, Bears fan, Bulls fan. If I'm forced to watch hockey, I'm a Blackhawks fan. And some of you are like, Whoa. I love Chicago, still do. But I honestly look back, and I think it was because I felt a sense of superiority. Like, I want to be from that city. Look what they have. We all do this. I, I, when I was a little kid, and it's not just like it extends to us as Americans, too. I, I'm not, I grew up during the Cold War era, okay? So, like, we were, like, hated the Soviet Union. It wasn't just Russia. It was the Soviet Union, USSR. So I literally, I tried to find it because I have it in my memory box somewhere, but I could not find it. I wanted to show you guys this picture that I drew when I was in, like, third grade. It was literally, it's a, it's a picture, a drawing of a basketball game where uh, the USA is playing the USSR, and on the scoreboard, it has USA 98, USSR 99, there's one second left on the clock, and the ball is going into the USA basket. It's obvious it's going to go in, okay? But there is a USSR rocket that is almost going to hit the ball and knock it away. But there is a USA rocket hitting the USSR rocket, breaking it in half, saving the ball. The US is going to win because we always win, right? There's this weird sense of superiority that we feel. <laughs> You're like, this dude had problems. Yeah, probably. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> but friends, that's what happens when we begin to assign value, worth, identity to what we do and who we do it with rather than God himself. And this began to happen all throughout human history and it still happens to this day. Flip over with me now to Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's about halfway through your Bible. 
Ecclesiastes, you'll find uh, Psalms and Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Uh, It's written um, by a fictional character named the teacher who then is teaching us lessons from their life. Now, we also think Solomon wrote it, and even though Solomon, we don't think, is this fictional character, there are definitely some very similar things to Solomon's life himself. And what we find in Ecclesiastes is that basically the teacher is looking for meaning, identity, purpose in life. And he goes through a few different things. The first thing that he does is he tries to pursue knowledge and wisdom accumulation, okay? He's like, if I can just be smart enough, wise enough, then that, I'll find meaning in life. And he basically says, this is meaningless. It doesn't work. Then he decides to pursue pleasure, okay? We're talking like money, food, fast women, fast camels, like all of it, okay? And he finds that pleasure does not give him the meaning he's looking for either, And so the last thing that he tries is work, accumulation. If he can just work and make a name for himself, which is kind of what happens, I think, the older we get. A lot of times we're like, well, if I can just like make a name for myself, if I have enough accumulation, like then I'll, you know, buy a building for GVSU and I'll make them put my name on it. Because that doesn't happen at Calvin or Cornerstone, right? (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> and at the end, he says it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. A real upbeat book, you know what I'm saying? Like, when you're just in the dumps a little bit, I recommend a healthy dose of Ecclesiastes. Like, it'll get you really fired up for life. Everything's meaningless. But there are some rays of hope that the teacher keeps throwing in on purpose. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22. 3, 22, he says this. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. In other words, we don't have a choice. Like, everybody's got to work. So it's awesome if you can enjoy your work. You're like, yeah, man, that's awesome. That's great. Like, I'm totally down. Like, I want to enjoy my work. But how? Right? Because it seems like everything's stacked against me to enjoy my work. Thorns and thistles. Right? The ground is cursed. Okay? There's difficulty in childbearing, and I think that actually continues on into child rearing. Sin affects everything, infects everything. So how do I get it? Well, he gives us another little hint in chapter 3, verse 13. He says this. He says that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. And he says this is the gift of God. You're like, all right, cool. So I find satisfaction in the gift from God. Great. How do I get the gift though? Like, what do I got to do to get that gift from God? Because it does seem like it's a gift, right? Like you can try all kinds of things and you might not get it. The gift from God, how do I get it? He, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses five and six, this is what he says. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You know how you get it? You get it from a handful of tranquility. Like, what? What? How do you know what that means? In verses 5 and 6, he gives us basically three options. The first option is you can get a handful of nothing. 
Okay? Basically, you just be lazy, don't do anything. You get a handful of nothing, that's not going to give you satisfaction. Then the second option we find in verse 6. Two handfuls of wealth. Two handfuls of wealth that come from toil and chasing after the wind. More money, more problems. Who was the rapper that said that? I should know. That was like my era. Biggie. Yeah, yeah, yeah Biggie. Thank you. Biggie knew. So did the teacher. Okay? That's not how you get it. That's not how you experience the gift. How you experience this gift from God, how you attain the gift from God, is with one handful of tranquility. In other words, you have a handful of wealth and a handful of tranquility. Uh, listen to what Tim Keller says about this. It's so helpful. He says, tranquility without toil will not bring us satisfaction. That's the handful of nothing. Then he says, neither will toil without tranquility. There has to be both toil and tranquility. How we attain such a balanced life is one of the main themes of Scripture. First, it means recognizing and renouncing our tendency to make idols of money and power. So you want to know how to experience this gift from God? You need to pay attention to the idols of money and power. You need to renounce them. You need to say those do not hold sway or value to me. Power and simply wealth accumulation does not bring you satisfaction. It can't. The second thing he says is it means putting relationships in their proper place, even though it probably means making less money. How you treat people, who you do life with, your business partnerships, your spouse, your family, the people you're going to walk alongside and do life with, the church that you're a part of, putting relationships in their proper place means you're probably not going to be able to make as much money because you can't do just whatever you feel like doing. You can still work the 90-hour work week, but you're not putting relationships in their proper place. You're pursuing the wrong thing, and you're going to wind up with two fistfuls of money and zero satisfaction. Uh, Isaac, uh, or excuse me, um, Keller goes on to say, those are the two things that Ecclesiastes teaches us. But Ecclesiastes, he says, cannot teach us everything that we need to know. We can't actually learn everything until we get to the New Testament because the teacher had not yet met Jesus. Jesus actually says that he comes to reverse the curse of Adam. He's the new Adam. In fact, it's his toil, painful toil, on the cross. You're like, he was just hung up there. That was work, friends. Real work on your behalf. And because of his work, his toil, we actually now can find that satisfaction. That's the missing piece for us as Christians. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote the song, Joy to the World, one we often sing at Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Verse 3 says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow. Grow. I love that choice of wording. He says, Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Remember what I said curse was? Curse was the removal of blessing. Now when Jesus returns, there's such deep, beautiful theology within this song. Jesus returns to get rid of the curse, to reinstate blessing, protection, care, 
to partner along with us. He's come to reverse the curse. Now, if you're a Cubs fan or a Red Sox fan, you're all about reversing the curse. Like, you get it, like, right? We're so excited. Like, Cubs won World Series. They're going to win again this year. If you're a Tigers fan, or excuse me, a Lions fan, you know all about curse because, like, I think it went on to you, Lions fans. Like, it was rough. Jesus came to reverse that which had been broken to find redemption. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Flip over there. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, God, God created us to be in partnership with him. When sin entered the world, it broke that. And we longed for it to return. And that's what Christ gives us back. That's the breaking of the curse. You will never find satisfaction in your work, in family or field, outside of Christ. Now, maybe you're joining us today and you're like, man, somebody invited me. Like, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Like, it seems a little bit strange to me. And maybe you're really questioning me right now. Like, bro, I don't know if I really believe that. You can continue on your entire life looking, striving, pursuing. But what we all find at the end is we can't give ourselves the meaning we desire nor can any material thing out there. The hope of the world is Jesus. I believe that with all my heart, and here's why I believe with all my heart, because I've experienced it. I know that it's true. I, I said to you, I want to answer the question on why God cursed the ground, because that's a very good question. Uh, John Mark Comer, in his book, actually addresses it, uh, something he le actually learned from a friend. He says this, he says, why would God do that? Why would a loving, generous creator curse his own creation? Is he cruel, sadistic, psychopathic, just plain mean? He says, here's my theory. I think the curse is a blessing in camouflage. It's God's love in disguise, his mercy incognito, because the curse drives us to God. If it weren't for the curses on both the family and the field, we would look to whatever it is we do for work or rest and we would find it and nothing could be more disastrous for the world than God's image bearers finding identity and belonging and even satisfaction apart from him. Look, friends, you can't find it. And so I simply want to say this. If, if you're new to the whole Christianity thing and, and you're still like, man, I don't know about this. Here's what I want to say. Like, just... Just ask God, say, God, if you're real, if Jesus is like the real deal, then start to show yourself to me. Start, prove it. I'm not afraid to put God to that test because I know he's real. I've experienced it in my own life. And, and, and if you've been wrestling with giving your whole self to God, your vocation to God, your life to God, your career to God, your college uh, major to God, your relationship to God, then today's the day, friends. Don't keep waiting. <laughs> the, the, the longer you wait, just the harder it is, the more pain and toil you experience because you don't get to do it with Jesus. As I said, look, if you're weary, you're burdened, come to me. 
Take on my yoke. Hook up with me. Connect with me. Because when you do that, you're going to experience that my yoke is easy. My burden's light. Come, let's do something together. Let's work together, but do it with me. And I promise you, you're going to experience a life of blessing and satisfaction. It does not mean that you will not experience pain or toil. You will. You absolutely will because Christ hasn't returned and made all things new yet. But he will. And in the meantime, let's do this together with Christ. So what do I want to say to you? I want to finish with this, simply this. Don't stop dreaming and pursuing your dreams, okay? Not everybody in the world gets, in fact, most people in the world don't get to have dreams, truth. They certainly don't get to pursue their dreams. Almost every single person in here does. Don't waste that opportunity. We have a responsibility to live out our God-given vocation on behalf of a world that doesn't have the options and the opportunities that we have. So do it. Go for it. Don't let fear hold you back. Partner with God. But I want you to remember that it will be a mixed bag of joy and struggle. All right? Excitement and setback, pain and pleasure. And you need to expect it to take a lot longer than you think. Not like weeks longer. <laughs> You're like, I've got to wait more than a few weeks. Not like months longer. Not like even years longer. I'm talking like decades longer. Know that. But here's the great thing. You no longer do it alone, and you no longer do it for yourself. And so simply let me leave you with this question. Everything God has ever done has been so that we could be with him, so that we could be his friends, his people, his partners. So I simply want to ask you this question as it relates to your job, your vocation, your family. Are you conscious of your partnership with God in your job? Whatever your job is, are you conscious of your partnership? Probably every single one of us, myself included, needs to keep asking myself that question. If you hate your job, I promise you, God's right in the middle of it. And he wants to partner with you. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we believe that you care about how we spend two-thirds of our waking lives. Because we spend two-thirds of our waking lives working. You created us to work. It's a gift, actually. And God, we believe that with all of our hearts. And we want to utilize the callings, the vocations, the lives, the different gifts and talents that you've given us, God, to partner with you in making this world what you want it to be. There is no such thing, God, as sacred work or secular work. There is no bifurcation. There is no difference. Work is from you. Let us do it in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Let us be your representatives here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, we are going to move into our ministry fair this morning. I can't reiterate uh, what Dave said. Look, if you're a college student and you're new to us, like you're probably like, ooh, do I really want to like dive in? I'm just a college student. I'm just hanging out. Like I got to be gone for some Like we get it, okay? But here's the deal. Every single one of us needs to engage in the church that God has called us to, okay? And so that means you need to look at what's available out there and say, how can I plug in? You want to know how you actually start to find community and a sense of belonging? Serve. You'll get to know folks. 
You'll start to love this place in ways you didn't love because you will become an owner, not simply a renter. And we're not a church for spiritual spectators. We're just not. If you want to be a spiritual spectator, there's a lot of other places that would be happy to have your butt in their seat. Okay? I love you, but we're not one of those places. We want a church that's on mission together. We will change the world. Why? Because we partner with God. And that's what God does. So we want to be about that. How's that for a guilt trip? You're like, oh man, I got to Like, all right, just still listen to God, okay? But let's do this together, all right? Let's do it together. I love you. Have a great rest of your week.